Well, I want to take you on kind of a personal pilgrimage. The topic is like a missionary, and I realize for most folks, I mean, you know, I, I really didn't think about the title when I was doing it. I, I'm just kind of, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to talk about. So I really wasn't thinking about how competitive this is to try and lure you into the presentation to come up with something really stirring. I'm just going to take you on kind of my own personal pilgrimage to rethink uh, what it means to serve in a major urban context or in any context uh, in North America today because we live in a context that's changing. Uh, This particular idea for me came when uh, I was in Hong Kong. I uh, was over there doing some uh, training for the North American Mission Board and in the process of doing that, and oh, good gracious, Ed Stetzer just walked in. So, you know, now what can I say? I was in Hong Kong. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Ed. At any rate, I was in Hong Kong, and I was doing training for the North American Mission Board, or excuse me, the International Mission Board. And while I was doing that, I first heard that the guy who was the executive director, my predecessor, Jim Harrington, was going to uh, move on to other responsibilities. I knew as the associate I probably would be asked to be interim. And moving into the role of interim, I knew there was a chance I would be asked to be the director of missions, and honest to goodness, I realized I really had no idea how to do this job. I really didn't know what it was going to take or what I would have to do. So we were in Hong Kong. We were having dinner together. Uh, We then went to Taipei, and we were doing some training there. And I was out at the University of Taipei walking around the track about 2 o'clock in the morning because it's a 12-hour time change difference. And, you know, I've you know, just couldn't sleep. And while I was walking around, I, I looked and thought and said, you know, I'm going back to one of the largest cities in the United States. It is now officially the most ethnically and culturally diverse metropolitan area in the United States. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. I'm going back to that context. And it really is like a mission field. And You know, here I am in the midst of a mission field. I need to learn how to think like these guys think if I'm going to go back and be able to successfully do my job. The truth was, I had absolutely no idea what it meant to think like a missionary. And I have been on a pilgrimage for the last um, 12 or 13 years to try and figure out what that means. So, what does it mean for us to think like missionaries? Oops. Let me just kind of give you a quick overview of what I want to talk about. One, I want to come back to what is our missionary mandate. And then I want us to think just a little bit about what our mission field is, and it's going to vary for all of us. Uh, But then I want to talk, and this is where I want to focus most of the attention, on cultivating a missionary mindset. What does that really mean to us? So let's go through these first couple of pieces real quickly. Uh, What is our missionary mandate? Peter Drucker, who is one of the really essential uh, thinkers in our lifetime. Peter Drucker uh, looked at things from a a business and a a not-for-profit organizational standpoint, said there are really two critical questions that every one of us has to be able to answer. The first is, what business are you in? And then the second is, how's business? Now that sounds really, really simple. But it's not as easy as it sounds. If we were to ask and answer the question, what business are we in? I hope we would say that we're in the Great Commission business. And for most of us, that's going to be kind of a well duh. We're talking about our responsibilities. It doesn't make any difference if you are a pastor of a church, director of missions, working for any Christian organization. You are in the Great Commission business. The trouble is we don't all really understand what the Great Commission is. And I think we'll discover over time, we're not really in the business that we think we're in. According to one particular resource, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their new book, What is the Mission of the Church? The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples in churches that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. You know, they're trying to say what Jesus said when He said, Go and make disciples. 
and make these disciples. And as you disciple them, put them in churches and then train them and then send them back out so that they become disciple making disciples. That's the business that we're in. The question is, how's business? And the answer for us in North America is basically not good. Because the growth curve is trending down. Now, isn't that a really polite way of saying we're in trouble? The growth curve is trending down. Let me show you what I mean. these are statistics that did come from Ed Stetzer. And so, you know, these are LifeWay approved statistics. You know, annual church change in Southern Baptist total membership. Southern Baptist rate of growth has been in decline for 60 years and recently moved into negative growth territory. Anybody want to tell me what that means? You know, once upon a time we were growing at 3 4%. That percentage has actually moved into, quote, negative territory, which means what? We're declining. Our actual membership numbers are in decline. Uh, If you look at total baptisms, we have trended downward in the Southern Baptist Convention since 1972. You know, so here we are from 1950 to 1972. Since not, that was our high point since 1972, we have trended downward. So we're going down in members, we're going down in baptism, and the number of baptisms per church member has been in decline for over 60 years in Southern Baptist Convention. Once upon a time, for every 100 members, we baptized more than five people. Now that number is slightly more than two people for every 100 members. And all of this has taken place while the U.S. population is growing. That's the staggering thing to remember. The U.S. population is going up. Our numbers are going down. That means the gap is getting wider every day. Our mission field is growing. Now, there's all sorts of reasons for what's going on, but one of the, one of the key questions is why? Why is this happening for us? Oh, by the way, let me, Ed stepped in, stepped out just a second ago. I was going to really want him here while I quoted him. Lamented that the denomination is not only experiencing decline, but an acceleration of decline. Despite a little uptick in a few areas, for example, baptisms this past year, looking at the map, Stetzer says the trend is clear and the Southern Baptist Convention needs to stare reality in the face and fight for our future. Rather, than merely manage decline like so many other Protestant denominations. That's a pretty sobering and staggering thought. So why is some of this and what's going on? And one of the things I want to say is because our mission field is changing. One of the areas is in the area of diversity. Uh, Most folks know that we are a nation of immigrants. Do you realize from 1780 to 1924, 35 million people came from other countries to live here in the United States? 35 million people over roughly a 150-year period of time. We are a nation of immigrants. What most folks don't realize is that from 1970 to 2005, another 35 million immigrants have come to the United States. So over about 150 years, immigrants came to the United States and they came primarily from Europe. If they came primarily from Europe, what does that mean about their religious history and heritage? Primarily Christian. Protestant, Catholic, some Jewish. For The first part of our country's history, that's primarily the folks that came. But since 1970, and laws changed in uh, the mid-1970s, since 1970, when our immigration laws changed, 35 million more have come in. But now, they're primarily coming from non-European countries. What does that mean in terms of their religious history and heritage. They're coming primarily from non-Christian traditions. Now, 
here's what I want you to understand. 35 million over a 150 year period of time. That is like a steady rain. 35 million in 35 years is like a torrential downpour that has come in. Now, I live in Houston, and we can accommodate, you know, a steady rain. But if you get a torrential downpour, if we get 8, 9, 10 inches in one day, there's going to be flooding all over the streets of Houston. And that's what's happened in terms of immigration. They're coming in, and they're coming in differently now. When it was a steady stream over 150 years, they came in, and their primary focus was, we want to become like Americans. We want to learn the language. We want to become part of the culture. And that's what happened. But now, with the flood of folks coming in, coming in differently, now they want to come in, and they want to preserve their history, their heritage, their culture, their language. And so they tend to live more than ever before in enclaves, And they're living and moving into America differently. That's why in Houston, Texas, we have Hindu temples and uh, Muslim uh, temples going up faster than Baptist churches. Or Muslim mosques going up faster than Baptist churches. Diversity is on the increase. Not only that, the percentage of the U.S. population that does not identify with any religion is on the increase. I don't know if you're familiar with the ARDA.com. Uh, the ARDA is the Association of Religious Data Archives. Uh, they track the religious life of America. And in 1990, 44.9% of the American population did not have any religious identity whatsoever. They weren't Baptist. They weren't Buddhist. They weren't Methodist. They weren't Muslim. They didn't have any religious identity. In 2000, that number was almost 50%. After the 2010 census, that number is now over 50%, 51.1%. The number of people that do not have any religious identity whatsoever is on the increase. So, not only is there diversity, folks that are coming in with other religions, but now the number of people that do not have any religious identity is going up, which means America is becoming a more secular and pluralistic, religiously pluralistic nation every day. That's our mission field. Now, here's what I've said. I've said, we're in the Great Commission business. I've asked, how are we doing? And the answer is, we're not really doing real well. Uh, The gap is getting wider between those that are evangelical Christians and those that have no religious identity, what we heard last night, those that are dead and dying in their trespasses and sin and are headed for an eternity without Christ in hell. I mean, we are becoming a minority population. And yet, what we heard this morning was, but God is doing fantastic things all around the world. So in Africa, you know, we've got... Thousands, millions of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In China, we've got church planting movements where they're going in in the beginning with very, very few believers. And within the course of a year, 20, 30, 40,000 people are becoming believers. We're seeing church planting movements going on all around the world. It's not happening in North America. And so one of the key questions is why and what is it about us? that's going to have to change for that to begin to be a possibility. My contention is this. We can keep going the way we've been going with minor tweaks to the system. And what we're going to continue to get is what we've got right now. Slow death. Or we begin to make deep, deep change. So I I really think those are our two options. It's either slow death or deep change. The question is, what has to change? Now, we're going to hear all sorts of answers in here. And one of the, some of the things that folks are going to say to us, Ed said it last night, we've got to get back in in touch with our our sense of the lostness of the world. Uh, We uh, have heard, you know, we need to get back to prayer. Uh, You know, 
we're going to hear lots and lots of things about what we need to do. I've tried to identify at least three real practical things that I think are going to need to change for us if we're going to get back to where we need to be. So let me, let me look at these three, and I call these the missionary mindset. All of them based on Scripture. All of them will be talked about in one way or another by folks here. And this is that sense in which there really is nothing new that I have to share. But I want to call us back to some things that I think are going to be important. First is, based on Luke 15, we've got to put a priority on lostness. The second, based on John chapter 1, we've got to really begin to understand the, the depth of the incarnation and what that means to us. And then third, we really need to get back to the book of Acts and some of the key concepts in the book of Acts. So I want to talk about these three things for just a minute. First, let me talk about Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 contains three parables. What are they? All right. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. Some folks want to see those as three parables. I prefer to see them as a trilogy. They're really just three parts. But all of them are basically saying the same thing. Jesus first tells a story and uh, recorded in Luke chapter 15. There was a, a shepherd and he had 99 sheep. These 99 sheep were well protected. They were safely in the fold. And he recognized that one was missing. And so what did he do? He left the 90 and 9 and he put the priority and the focus on the one that was missing. And he went out and brought him back. So there's a woman. She had 10 coins. And nine were in her, her coin purse. One was missing. And what did she do? She went and she swept and she, she overturned the furniture. She did whatever she needed to do in order to find that one coin that was missing. A father had two sons. One lived in rebellion and walked away from the family. And the father earnestly waited and prayed and rejoiced when that one son came back. In all of these, the priority is on the one that is lost. Right? I mean, there's nothing new there. So, there was 99 that were safely in the fold. There was one that was lost. And he went after it. The shepherd put the priority on the one. Now, here's one thing I want to remind us of. And that is that at one time or another in our lives, every one of us were a one. Every one of us were one. But the way we do church, the way we do church is that we focus our priorities not on the one that's lost, but on the 99 that are in the fold, don't we? I mean, now this is the time for, okay, you don't have to raise hands, but I mean, let's get real. I mean, look at our budgets. Look at how we spend our money. Look at how we spend our time. And the, the reality is that as much as we would like to say that we are concerned about the lost, the reality is we spend most of our time taking care of the saved. In... Southern Baptist life. 99 to 1, that's the biblical priority. But here is the Southern Baptist ratio. There's one of us for every 19 people in America. And the question is, where are we going to put the priority? Now, as I really came to grips with this, and it was about 10 or 11 years ago, I really had to come to grips with this in a way I never had before. And again, I'm telling you, this, this is my personal pilgrimage, okay? 
when I came to grips with this, I realized that essentially I had become nothing more than a professional Christian. And I was good at it. I knew how to preach sermons. I knew how to grow churches. I knew how to gather a crowd. I knew how to lead an organization. I knew that if you ask a question related to the church, the answer was Jesus. You know, if, it may sound like a rabbit or sound like a squirrel, but the answer is going to be Jesus, right? I knew how to do all this stuff. And the truth was, I had become a professional Christian that had moved away from the passion of reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember the story of Moses? Moses, he was a, a guy who was, yeah, we all know his story, uh, born at the wrong time, had to be protected. And by the sovereignty of God and the creativity of his family, he was preserved and he was saved. He was raised in Pharaoh's household at his mother's breast. He learned the stories of his people. Even though he learned the culture of Egypt, he knew the stories of his people. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. And I really think growing up, he had a burning desire to do something to help his people and to set them free. And one day, a great opportunity came. He saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. And he, he lashed out. And in the process, he struck the Egyptian and he died. And he thought, all the Hebrews are going to know that, that I am here to set them free. He had a desire and a, a passion, I believe, to say, see his people set free. But the, the Hebrews misunderstood his actions. They thought, man, if he'd do that to one of them, imagine what he would do to one of us. And so they feared him. And Moses actually had to flee. He had to go off into the desert and run away because now Pharaoh was after him too. Part one of his life, he was ignorance on fire. He had passion to set his people free, but he didn't know how to do it. Part two, he goes off into the desert, and 40 years he's out there. And one day, when he's about 80 years of age, which gives me hope for old age. One day he's 80 years of age, and God speaks to him in a burning bush. And you remember that story? Now, let me tell you how I understand and think about that story because for me it's a, it's a powerful metaphor not just a historical reality. Here was a bush that burned and was not consumed, right? And that bush that burned that was not consumed I think was reflective of the heart and the passion and the fire of God. And God said to Moses, I have come down to set my people free. And then in that way that we never really understand He said, and now Moses I'm sending you to do it. Why in the world God chooses to do things through us, I'll never know. But God said, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it through you. And we know Moses at that point. Moses at that point is saying, listen, I tried that. I tried, I failed, I'm out here, I have no respect, I'm a shepherd now, I, I can't go back. He gave all of the excuses, but something in that encounter with God caused his heart to burn again. You see, I think Moses was that dry bush. But something in the encounter with God caused the fire from the heart of God to leap from that bush into the heart of Moses and his passion was reignited. And from that point on, Moses became the bush that burned and was not consumed. Because when he died, 40 years later, at the age of 120, it says his eye was not dimmed and his strength was not abated. He was the bush that burned and was never consumed. Now let me tell you, I had that kind of experience in a really small sort of way. About 10 or 11 years ago when I realized, you know, for a long time I had become just a professional Christian. You know, it's easier to say now than it was to experience back then and to realize how far I had gotten away from my passion because when I started this thing as a 16 year old you know radical teenager all I wanted to do was to see folks 
get saved. But somehow, I'd become the highly profane, uh, profane, highly trained professional clergy. And you know, I think there's a whole lot of folks that were like me. That have become nothing more than professional Christians that know how to do the job really, really well. But the truth is, the passion's gone. One of the things I learned from my missionary friends is that they leave home and country and comfort and convenience and all they know and they'll travel anywhere around the world and sometimes live in horrendous conditions just so that they can share the gospel with somebody. I think part of that missionary mindset that we've got to come back to is that priority on lostness. And we're starting to hear the lingual, penetrating lostness and, and, and really using the lingo, but the truth is until our hearts change within us, the lingo is only going to be more lingo. I think a priority on lostness. For me, the issue is the difference between espoused theory and theory and practice. That's a good business language way of saying things that we don't walk the talk. Every one of us would say we're in the Great Commission business. Every one of us would say the priority is on lostness. But if you look at how we spend our money, how we spend our time, it's the story of one pastor. I I was going out talking with our pastors about a number of things. I, I walked in the office of this one pastor, one of our largest churches, one of our most evangelistic churches, I mean, fantastic, fantastic job. And I went in, I sat down in his office, I was talking with him about this. And he said, you know, Tom, I really would like to get out there and share the gospel more. But the truth is, I've got three funerals to do this week, and I've got a big staff to take care of, and we've got this work to do. He said... I'm so busy being a pastor, I haven't got time. And you know, I could identify with that. I was there. And I think too many of us can identify with that. Somehow we've got to move from espouse theory to theory and practice and put the priority back on lostness. The second, from John chapter 1, We've got to really get into and understand the Incarnation again. The Incarnation basically means He became one of us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? John chapter 1, 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. We know that. It means He became one of us. But it makes a big difference in the way you, you, you look at that. If we put our focus on one of us... He became one of us. Then the focus is on identification. And you know, that's true. That's what missionaries do. They go and they begin to to live within the culture and identify with the culture and adopt the language of the culture and the dress of the culture and the eating habits of the culture. Jesus came and pitched His tent among us. Is the way one of the modern translations put it. And that's what missionaries do. They go and become part of the culture. But if the emphasis is on the identification, if it's on understanding, speaking the heart language, we heard that this morning. I don't care if it's Hindu or hip-hop, we need to be able to speak the heart language. The emphasis is on identification. We've got one part of the incarnation. And we could talk a lot about that, but I want to look at the He Became part of it. Because it says, He became one of us, and the emphasis there is on initiative. And I think that's the part we've got to get back to. Jesus became one like us. He took the initiative. Now, let's go back to the parables of lostness. Ninety-nine sheep are in the fold, right? And there is one sheep that's lost, and... Who takes the initiative to get the lost sheep? The shepherd does. Ten 
coins. Nine are in the purse. One is somewhere around the house. And the woman takes the initiative to get the lost coin, right? Now, I treat these as a trilogy rather than three separate parables because I think there's a message in that last one. And that is you can't treat people the way you treat sheep. It's a little bit different when you start working with people. And, you know, so the, the father, he, he waited, he prayed. You know, we don't know if he sent out emissaries. We don't know what he might have done. We don't know if he tried to communicate. I think what Jesus is trying to say to us in the parable is, yeah, we've got to figure out this balance between initiative and realizing we can't make people do things. But we can't ever forget that initiative part. It's not about them finding us. It's about us going to them. I can't tell you how many meetings I was in as a pastor where we would have discussions about how we need to change things, how we need to do things, and I would hear things back from church members like, well, they know we're here. We have church same time every Sunday. Our doors are open. I passed a church coming here and saw a sign that says, everybody welcome. Like, that's what, it's, uh, that's what we're supposed to do. We're just supposed to open the doors and expect people to come, and we've done our job. But if I understand the essence of the incarnation, it's really about we have to take the initiative. Now, for me, this kind of stands in contrast to our practice. And our practice is one of attraction and extraction. The incarnation is about taking the initiative to go, to get into, to live among, to be with. We are responsible for taking the initiative. But our methodology is more about attraction. It's, a more, it's more about, we try and be so attractive that they'll want to come to us. And so much of our way of doing church in America is about, we want to be attractive enough for you to come and to hear our great preacher, or to hear our great music, or to be a part of this great program. Our way of doing things is about how many folks can we get to come here? It's the comment we heard earlier. It's not about seating capacity, it's about sending capacity. The incarnation is about the sending. It's about taking the initiative to go to and to be among. I'd love to talk more about it. I'd love to tell you the story of Chris C. in greater detail. But, you know, Chris is one of our pastors. Chris, Chris really takes this stuff to heart. And so he wanted to start a church in the Montrose community there in Houston. The Montrose community is, is one of the really, really tough parts of Houston where the gay population is, is the greatest concentration in Houston, one of the largest gay populations outside of San Francisco. And he moved his family into that community. And they took an old church and they, he moved his family into the sanctuary. That's where they lived. They, they cleared out a space and they lived there. And I tease him about bathing in the baptistry. But, you know, they cleared out a space there in the sanctuary. He said he'll never forget that first night he woke up and heard commotion outside. And he went outside and there was a transvestite prostitute on the front porch of the church trying to do business where he had done it every night for a long, long time. And Chris said, oh, my gosh, what have I just done? moving my family into this kind of community. But that's what incarnation demands. Taking that kind of initiative. But then the, a piece that I think we really have to struggle with, and those of you that are directors of missions can really struggle with this too, and that is we really need to get back to the book of Acts and to the emphasis in the book of Acts, which is, I believe, on movement and multiplication. When Jesus said, I will build my church, I don't think this is what he had in mind. When Jesus said, I will build my church, I believe with all of my heart that what he was doing was starting a movement, not founding an institution. And there's all the difference in the world in thinking about those two things. I mean, you go to the book of Acts. And you go to the book of Acts and, and you hear the Great Commission. Jesus said, you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's, it's like 
Jerusalem became the rock thrown into the pond and the concentric waves of the gospel were to go out from there. You read that the Spirit came and the Spirit came as a mighty rushing what? Wind. And came as a tongues of fire. Now, wind is all about movement, right? There is no wind without movement. Fire. You ever seen fire static? I mean, you may see it contained, but fire is in constant motion. And if you look at the history of the early church, the history of the early church was all about movement. Now, it didn't start out that way. They started out wanting to be church like we do church. They wanted to just stay there in their holy huddle there in Jerusalem, and God had to scatter them out. But once they got scattered, they got the idea that they were to go everywhere, and it really became about movement, right? And it became about multiplication. It says in the beginning, And the Lord added to the church daily. And the Lord added to the church daily. But then later the language changes. And the number of disciples began to multiply. Movement and multiplication. I'd love to take you more into that. But let me just show you a couple of things. I don't know if you're familiar with Rodney Stark. He wrote a book, The Cities of God. He's written Triumph of Christianity. He's written a a lot of books. Rodney has done us a great, great favor in the evangelical church to help us understand Christianity through the ages. But Christianity grew at a rate... Anybody want to guess what the rate of growth for Christianity was during the first 300 years of its existence? 5% per decade, 10%, 20%, what do you think? A couple hundred percent per decade for 300 years? Well, not exactly. But it was 40% per decade for the first 300 years. 40% per decade. Now, he gives us some numbers. And these are numbers from his book, well-documented, well-researched. We would probably question them a little bit. He says, by the year 40 AD, there were a 1,000 believers. Well, we read the book of Acts and, you know, uh, early on... 3,000 were added to the church. It began to grow. We would, we would probably question that. But notice, by year 50, he says there were 1,400 believers. By 100, 7,000. By 150, 40,000. By 200, 217,000. You get up to the year 350. And he says there were 33 million believers. Now, he documents all of his numbers in his book. And you can go back and do his research. And if you read one of Rodney Stark's books, it's about two-thirds book and one-third documentation and, and sources and, and bibliography. So he is a sociologist at Baylor University, uh, does not consider himself an evangelical Christian. But he has done us a great service as he looked at the growth of the early church and he said, based on an estimated population of 60 million, the percentage of the population by the year 350 was over 50%. Now just stop and be staggered by that for a moment. 300 years, 50% of the world's population. And what's going on in America today? Starting with one believer, if if we developed a multiplication mentality, my contention is we have an incremental growth strategy. But if we developed a multiplication mindset, we started with one believer, we doubled that number of believers so that at the end of first year we'd have two the end of two years we'd have four the end of four years we'd have eight how long would it take to reach the eight billion people in our world actually 33 but how many southern baptists are there 15.9 million let's round that up to let's say there's 16 million okay and even if not all Southern Baptists are, are, are real believers, there are at least 16 million Christians in the world, right? If we start with 16 million, how long do you think it would take? No, well, not doubling every year, but it would take less than 10 years.
Look at the numbers. Come on. Okay. I may have to stand here and do this for a second. Starting with one. You can see how doubling it moves in 33 years. Starting with 16 million in less than 10 years. Now, somebody says, oh yeah, well what about population growth? Don't worry. We just take 34 years instead of 33 years. Because it'll go from 8 to 17. Now, I realize that's never going to happen. But that's not my point. My point is that we tend to think and do what we do around incremental growth instead of thinking about how do we do things from a movement and multiplication mindset. And we set up our systems, we set up our strategy, we set everything up around how do we do it incrementally as opposed to how do we do it exponentially. Don't believe me? This kind of represents the number of churches in Southern Baptist life. Southern Baptist churches in 2010. Anybody know how many Southern Baptist churches there were in 2010 according to ACP? You are really sharp. Very good. 45,727. Do you know what the net gain was between 2010 and 2011? Based on the most recent statistics that we've got? Net increase in churches. Anybody want to take a guess? No, it wasn't negative. It was positive. 3,000? Try 37. 37 net increase. Now, I know these numbers are right because these numbers came from Lifeway. Okay? These are our numbers telling our story. There are 1,200 associations. And yet we have a net gain of 37 churches. There are, you know, you start taking state conventions and, and you know, look at what we're talking about. We are not designed for movement and multiplication. We are designed for incremental growth. And my contention is that until we change our system, strategy, structure, and thinking, until we change our mindset to say, how do we get back to the book of Acts? How do we get back to movement and multiplication? I mean, they did this without strategies. They did this without the organization and the structure that we've got. Why? Because I think they were only focused on how do we make disciples. They weren't focused on how do we protect the system. The challenge for the church today is to figure out how do we go from our institutional mindset back to movement. How do we change our mindset from addition to multiplication. I mean, just stop and think how long it takes to start a church and what's involved and how much money it is. I, I really did have this conversation with one of our pastors. And he said to me, Tom, unless I've got $24 million at my disposal, I don't even think about starting another church. Stop and think about that for a minute. If you've got to have $24 million before you start a new church, how are we ever going to get there? Okay? You say, that number's preposterous. Okay, let's bring it down to... Three million, four million, five million. Okay, let's bring it down to a couple of million. We're never going to get there. If is on the institution as opposed to simply making disciples. Somehow we've got to experience deep change.
So for me, this has all been a pilgrimage to think differently about what it's going to take for us to reach North America. We've got to put a priority on lostness. We've got to start thinking more about this incarnational approach and the whole concept of taking initiative as opposed to an attractional model that we've got. And we need to get back to the Acts agenda. Now let me just kind of stop there because I think we're supposed to stop for some questions and answers and that and the fact that Stan is giving me the high sign. Walter? Okay. Well, the, the convention went at some point from 1 to 40, 46 on So what go from then 46,000 to Yeah. Uh, actually, I would love to tell you that full story. Uh, because I, uh, I've got a piece I call How the West Was Won. You know, how the church in America grew. And if you go back to the history of the church in America... There actually has been a church planting movement in America. It was among Baptist and Methodist. And it took place in the 1800s. And it was at a time when the emphasis was on the lay preacher, not on the professionally trained clergy. Because we didn't have the Baptist schools and the seminaries at that particular point. It was on the lay clergy, and it, was, it wasn't necessarily on a, a house church model, but it was a lay preacher gathering a group. Now, for the Methodists, it was based on the, the class idea of you know, circuit-riding preachers, but there were classes, and these classes became what some would call house churches. But it was a pretty unstructured way of doing it. The emphasis was on the laity, and... We really did grow exponentially. In fact, we've, we've got the data from both the Methodist and our own Baptist history that shows both the Methodist church and the Baptist churches were on a growth curve that was phenomenal. The Methodists changed in 1880. Their growth curve started down then. Ours started down in the mid-1900s. Theirs started down when they went to a highly structured system of districts and bishops and they, they set in place all of that structure. And when they did, their growth rate began to decelerate and then go into decline. But there actually has been a church planting movement in America. And it was at a time when the focus was on laity and the focus was on the small church. Mm-hmm. And being a pastor to the pastor, mm-hmm. uh, often you get in the churches like to hear pastors preach, and then as opposed to getting into the office during the week and talking with them. First, Charlie, let me tell you, I do not see myself as a pastor to the pastors. Because of the size of your association? That's part of it. But I think because of the changing mission field context, um, I really... We have restructured Union Baptist Association and we think of ourselves today as the lead mission organization for reaching the city of Houston. So we see ourselves primarily as missionaries to reach the urban context of Houston, not being pastors to pastors. Well, that would, you know, it's more than one thing you would do. So I'm not saying this is the only thing or the primary thing. Because evangelism, I think, is right up there too. Mm-hmm. I've got over 600 and something churches that are a part of UBA. One third are Anglo, one third African American, one third speak a language other than English. Um, You have to think of us more like a small state convention. In fact, we're larger than a number of the state conventions. And so, uh, no, I don't see myself as a pastor to pastors. we, I've got a, a staff of folks. We relate to as many folks as we can. And sure, I go out. But uh, I try and go out more incognito. I don't 
when I go out, I'm there. I let the pastor know after I've been there. I don't let him know that I'm coming in advance because I got tired of being introduced all the time and, you know, doing things. So it's just, I let him know after I've been there. But I think relationships are one of our strong suits, but we don't try and do it that way. My staff. Depends upon how you do the numbers, uh, because we also have a 500-acre conference center. We've got several mission centers, and the staff swells and, and declines depending upon the time of year. Uh, but I've got uh, four uh, other full-time church consultants and uh, two other uh, associate directors, and then support staff. Yes. Sure. Well, as you heard last night, uh, over the last decade, we have lost about 850 churches per year. The thing I think for us to remember is that most of those churches that are, are getting lost or, or closed, those churches have been in severe decline or, or, or trouble for a long, long time. So in, in raw numbers, you know, we're, uh, I don't know what the number in decline was for last year. Didn't didn't see that. I just know what the net gain was. But that would account for some of it. But even with that, even with what we're talking about, you know, uh, we've got to think, you know, if, if we're doing it around buildings and budgets and professionally trained clergy, there are not enough professionally, there are not enough people in our seminaries for us to have the number of churches that we need being trained right now. We don't have enough money in our coffers to start the number of churches that we need if we've got to go out. And in some of our urban context, you know, buy the land and build the buildings. We just don't have the money. We don't have the people. We've got to think differently. If we don't, we're going to continue on in slow decline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of like Texas. Exactly. That's why for over 10 years, we do not give any funding for church planters. We do training. We do lots of other things to provide support, but we have not given a penny to a church planter. Because I started saying back 10 years ago, we've got to figure out how to start, or more than that, figure out how to start churches without money. And that's part of my quest in figuring out all this stuff out because if money a place to meet and finances building and finances those are the two things that are standing in the way of us doing what we need to do and if if money is you know i want to start a church but i want a salary then you know we're never going to get there